to This Week in Higher Ed. I'm Mike Palmer, joined as always by Dr. Terry Gibbons. Uh, Terry, how are you today? I'm doing very well today. It's a beautiful day in sunny California. Awesome. And uh, and we're going to welcome our guests in right at the top. We're gonna, we have a lot to cover today. We're going to be talking about uh, some research that uh, 2U did with Gallup. Uh, we have David Sutphin, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at 2U. And we also have Stephanie Markin, who's the Executive Director of Educational Research at Gallup. So welcome, David and Stephanie. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, and we normally begin by just checking in, seeing how people are doing, uh, understanding the state of play in your lives, in your part of the world. Uh, I believe both of you are in the the greater uh, District of Columbia area. Um, how are how are you doing today, Stephanie? I'm doing great. Yep, I'm here in DC. It's about 80 or so degrees. So this is the best time of year, I think, in the district. It gets a little hot and humid here shortly. It'll be 80% humidity probably in the coming days. I think this is the best time of year in DC because I'm from Massachusetts. So I moved mm. intentionally for the climate clearly. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's a beautiful day in the district. Awesome. Uh, and how about you, David? How, how are things uh, your neck of the woods? Uh, all good, no complaints. Spent most of the uh, day doing my meetings outside. Um, and um, I got on a plane for the first time in um, 15 months this past weekend and took my son who turned seven last week to Universal Studios. So wow. packed flight, no seats there and back. So it was kind of re-entering the world in a little bit of a shocking way. But, you know, we both came back in one piece um, Wow, with a lot less money in our pocket because those places are insanely expensive, but that's okay. <laughs> and how, how was his experience of, uh, of the theme park? Because that must have been... You know, it's it's been a tough year for a six to seven year old, I imagine. So, so how did how did he fare with all of that? Uh, he is in a deep dinosaur obsession and King Kong obsession, so he was very happy about that. I, I will say this, just as a random aside, we were sitting on the plane. He was in the window, and I was in the middle. And there was a young African American mother sitting next to me, you know, with a baby. And he looks over as we're getting to, ready to take off, and he's he starts to get really emotional, and he's like daddy, she's not six feet from you. And I was like, buddy, it's okay. Like I'm fully vaccinated. He's like, no, 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 it's not okay. And he starts like crying. Oh. And, you know, he's a pretty like, you know, uh, well-adjusted kid. And it struck me like for the first time, because he's been in school wearing masks, that like the impact of this year and a half on the psyche of, of kids that age. And yeah. I, I wonder whether they're ever going to hug their friends, which I, I worry a little bit about, you know, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I resilient, think, so hopefully. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, I think we reflect on that as adults, but then it is really striking when you do think about uh, younger kids. But it really, you know, it's it's been a place where uh, there's been a lot of time to reflect. Uh, Terry, I know for you, uh, you know, I, I definitely want to get your COVID and and the like update from your neck of the woods. But I also uh, in the news this week, uh, Stanford uh, has now gone back on its previous announcement that they were going to be suspending uh, several of their athletic programs. I wanted to get some of your perspective uh, on that as we're, we're checking in as well. So just a general check-in, but also um, I'd love to get your perspective on that topic. Well, we getting people vaccinated here. I'm personally am vaccinated and my family is vaccinated, but um, yeah, we're, we're there. 
brought us down to the yellow tier here in California, which means that gyms can open and you know various things can open. Um, so that's wonderful. I've actually been going out and meeting people for lunch, mostly outside, um, but uh, you know, starting to think about the possibility of eating indoors. <laughs> and uh, uh, but yeah, it is a really interesting saga because a year ago Stanford announced that they were going to be ending eleven sports, and there is a huge outcry from the alumni. There have been um, you know, petitions, all kinds of things going on around it. And, you know, the sports are, you know, obviously non-revenue sports. They're, they're the kind of sports that could potentially become club sports. But, um, you know, it, when you look at a big institution like Stanford and the money they can bring in, it just seems kind of silly, especially given that, you know, they've had a very large, they have one of the largest sports programs in the country, which is why they win the Director's Cup every year, because <laughs> not only do they have all these programs, they're winning national championships. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, yeah, I think it was a big frustration to a lot of the alumni, you know, and there's uh, many of them are who are more wealthy than me are stepping up and 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 uh, saying that they're, they're going to support these sports going forward. Um, yeah. And, you know, I can see both sides of the issue. Um, sports is a huge, someday we, we have to have another <laughs> a session just on sports because, yeah. um, you know, I think we're going to see, well, most institutions are cutting sports in one way or another. Right. Well, especially yeah. in the last year, you know, uh, run, even running a sports program is something we talked a lot about where like, you know, what are the what are the economics of it, but also what are the ethics and the epidemiology of it? Uh, all really complicated uh, topics and things that we'll uh, want to continue to weigh in on. Um, interestingly, though, uh, to you, for folks who may not know about it, uh, you know, I, I don't believe, David, to the best of my knowledge, although I know you're in a strategic position, I don't believe to you has any uh, sports programs activated uh, at, at this time. No. Unfortunately, but, not. <laughs> but but uh, but can you catch folks up on to you because because you're more on the online side of uh, of education and higher ed, and we wanted to make sure we uh, we provide a little perspective on that, and then uh, maybe with Stephanie's help, uh, the two of you can uh, frame up what to you is and and the research you recently did with your alumni. Sure. Um, so, to you has been around now for about 13 years, and you know when it launched back in 2008, really the only players in online higher education were the traditional for-profits. You know, none of the major nonprofit institutions were really offering, you know, online degree programs. And I think the founders of the company were like, well, why is that? You know, the technology had evolved to a place where they thought you could deliver high quality. And so what 2U does is partner with, you know, great nonprofit universities around the world. We now have 80 partners, um, many of the names that you know, you would all know. And for the first nine years of the business, uh, all of the degree programs that we powered were in the graduate space. And that was very intentional. The view being that, you know, why should you have to uproot your life, move across the country to pursue a graduate degree when you could be working full time and still get a great experience. Interestingly, um, one of the elements back in the day, which people actually thought was kind of crazy at the time, was that every single one of two years degree programs has a weekly live online dimension to the course. So it's mm -hmm. it's both synchronous and asynchronous and the you know the cohorts are less than you know 20, 25 students. And uh, you know, fast forward, you know, nine years into the business, we acquired a company in South Africa called Get Smarter that's in what we describe as the short course space. So these are you know six to 10 week long courses on functional skills, leadership skills, you know, 
Women's Leadership at Yale, a diversity, equity, inclusion course at Northwestern taught by Al Tillery, disruptive tech, you know, fintech blockchain. And then about two years ago, we, we entered into the tech skills-based bootcamp. So, you know, you want to learn how to code, um, you want to learn UX, UI, uh, and, and then we recently also entered into the undergraduate space. So we have three undergraduate partners, Simmons University in Massachusetts, uh, the London School of Economics, where you can now get a fully online undergraduate degree in economics or eight other disciplines for $25,000 in three years from LSE. And then the, mm. the most recent announcement we made, which you know I'm personally really passionate about, is a degree completion offering with Morehouse uh, College. Uh, which will ultimately become a fully online set of degree offerings. But the two first degrees we're launching are a bachelor in business and a bachelor in computer science. And um, I think what excites me the most about that is, you know, there's th over 3 million just black men in the United States who started college and stopped out. Mm -hmm. um, and the way the program is structured in part because of the scale of what 2U is able to bring to the table is, the price per credit for the degree completion program will essentially be almost half of what the physical campus program costs. Mm -hmm. So at the same time that Morehouse is extending itself to the wider world, um, we're also able to make the program more affordable. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, you know, as a transition to the research, I think one of the things that we have felt and experienced over the last 13 years is that the quality of the learning and the outcomes in the online degree programs that we power, we believe are as good, if not better than physical campus programs. And so a couple of years ago, we reached out to Stephanie to see if we could you know, do some really high quality objective research on that. And that's what led to the partnership. Yeah, and just to add to that, you know, part of the reason I think David came to Gallup for this research was our history through the Gallup Alumni Survey, which has a very unique way in which we go about evaluating those outcomes. So for those listeners who are a little bit further from that work, we launched the Gallup Alumni Survey back in 2013. And we did so with this belief that education was ultimately about getting a better job and a better life, right? That's when we talk to prospective students and even currently enrolled students, that's what they report enrolling in higher education in the first place for. They want a great job and a great life. And we said, well, if higher education is about a great job and a great life, we should go about measuring the extent to which graduates are actually experiencing that when they complete their program. And there's no shortage of outcome-based metrics available for you know, degree earners and specifically those who have a bachelor's degree in the U.S., but most of them focus on what we would call traditional economic measures, right? Things like income and employment rates, which are incredibly important but don't really do the service of explaining the outcomes of a degree granting experience, right? For many students, they go to have a higher purpose job or a higher paying job, or even to improve their well-being. It's not just about the extent to which they're employed for an employer, it's about so much more. Mm -hmm. Our founder, George Gallup, once said, you know, democracy is about the will of the people, somebody ought to measure what that will is. So we, well, Higher education is about providing people an opportunity to get a better job and a better life. We better measure the extent to which that's happening. So that really inspired the work back in 2013. And through that work, we've interviewed, you know, just over 100,000 um, bachelor's degree earners nationally, in addition to about 10,000 or so who've earned a graduate degree and asked them really specific questions about their experiences while enrolled, but also their short and long-term outcomes to try to understand for individual schools and policymakers and practitioners and providers like to you, you know, what are the experiences people have to have while enrolled that best prepare them for success upon graduation in a variety of areas you know, from their 
employment-based experiences, but also in the case of their well-being, um, and the extent to which they would recommend the university and, and describe as really valuable experience. So one thing that I'm really excited about in the case of 2U is we can actually compare you know, 2U graduates to a nationally representative sample of graduate degree holders and really understanding you know, what is it about the 2U experience for 2U powered programs that's really differentiating the outcomes for those graduates from those in the national average, which I think does just a great job of really contributing to the field. Yeah, yeah, and the and the findings are you know it's it's very digestible. Thirty pages of uh, data rich, infographic y testimonial stuff. So it's a, it's pretty easy to digest. And uh, there's some interesting findings in the two U uh, component of this survey, which uh, which just recently released. Uh, and this is the second year that uh, you've been polling the 2U alumni, and it's a very transformational year, something we've been talking about a lot uh, on this show. Uh, I'd love to get some perspective. You know, you're only two years in, so, you know, you're comparing 2020 to 2019, and 2020 in many ways is a year that kind of stands on its own, but also maybe it's an inflection point in that for an online program like to you, uh, in many ways, you were ahead of this rapid transformation to online. So I'd love to get some initial um, response, uh, really from all of you, but maybe beginning with you, uh, David, uh, in terms of what findings jumped out to you and uh, just your general perspective now that you're two years in, anytime you're doing something longitudinal, you start to get a little more perspective once you have more than one year under your belt. And then the year that was just added is such a transformational year. So I'm sure there's plenty of perspective you could bring to bear. Yeah, ha happy to answer that. And one thing that I would say, because uh, I think it's important to point out in the context of this, you know, the alums in these programs are not two year alums. They're the alums of our university partners. And so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we enable these unbelievable nonprofit universities to kind of bring themselves and the best of themselves online. And um, I, I guess what I was, so the first year, we kind of didn't know what to expect, right? You know, I mean, you do this, you have a certain sense as to what might be there. I think the, the biggest takeaway in 2019 was that, you know, I think it was 92 or 93% of the alums of 2U Powered programs said they would do it all over again. And that was kind of a holistic statement. So that takes into account, you know, the cost of the program, the, the value of it, the experience in class. So this year we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into uh, issues around what's motivating people to go back to graduate school. Like, are they having uh, really positive career outcomes? And if so, like, what are, what are those? And then a little bit more around the equity stuff. And, um, you know, I think, Something that it's often kind of underappreciated is if you talk to any CEO right now or any you know thought leader or uh, someone who talks about the world of work, they will always say that people are motivated by purpose in their jobs more than money, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can tap into that, you're going to get more out of your employees. They're going to be happier. They're going to be more fulfilled. So one of the things that I I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by, but it was heartening to see is from a policy perspective, so much of the debate is what is your salary after your first year of school? But if you actually look at the research, it shows that the by a significant uh, like a gap in percentage, the primary motivation for people going back to school was for a more fulfilling career, mm -hmm. right? And so 
those two things actually are, I would argue, mirror images of, of each other, right? Mm -hmm. You're looking for that career fulfillment. Um, on the positive career outcome, I also think that the way that Gallup measures it is so valuable, both because it, it enables you to benchmark online versus on ground, mm -hmm. but it also is a, is a broader aperture for like, what are the ways in which you would define a positive career outcome? you know, that I think more accurately reflect the realities. And then the last part, um, you know, we were finalizing the design of this study, you know, in the middle of last summer, when obviously we were having really profound, you know, reckonings as a country. And I spent, you know, the early part of my career working in the civil rights world for the Legal Defense Fund and for Brian Stevenson and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And I work it to you because I am passionate in the same way that Terry is about equity. And I thought, you know, we hear a lot about the equitable experiences of students of color and first-gen students, but let's see what they actually have to say. So to be honest with you, the finding that I took the most, um, I was most heartened by was the fact that students of color and the sample size for black students was lar large enough. Unfortunately, it was not large enough for uh, Latinx, Hispanic students or Asian uh, students, but first-gen, it was large enough that they are having, you know, equitable career outcomes and that their experiences while in program were equitable. And that's not accidental, I would say, it's because of the way we design it. So to your la last point, and then I'll turn it over to, to Stephanie, Mike, is we had the benefit of, we've been designing programs for 13 years, right? Mm -hmm. So like we have a whole learning experience framework that's grounded in these notions of feel, do, and think. So what, what we thought was valuable in this moment about the research is that if you do it right, and that's the hard part, it can be as good, if not better, than a physical campus experience and at the same time create more access and opportunity. And that's a win. And I would argue in a moment where people now realize that online is part of the future and is not going away and everything mm -hmm. on some level maybe ended up being blended, like that was a really important um, message to send. So Yeah, and before Stephanie jumps in, do you guys, I wanted to throw some broader context into this because um, you know, I've been following very closely what's going on in the online and ed tech and, and so on. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier, David, that really struck me as well, was, which was, you know, something from the report as well, which is that we have so many students out there who have not completed degrees, right? And actually, when I was at Menlo College, we had a degree completion program. Um, and unfortunately, it wasn't doing very well because it was face-to-face, -face, right? If, we, I, if I were still there, I would say, let's take it online. Um, but the, um, you know, the broader perspective here is that, you know, there's this whole issue of developing pathways for students to have that lifelong learning opportunity. And it obviously impacts students of color um, more than, you know, disproportionately, because yeah. <laughs> um, we know the data for, for degree completion is bad, <laughs> regardless. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about these opportunities for, for degree completion in particular because of the equity impact that it will have. But um, the, the, just from a broader perspective, I think this is clearly you know, data that we need because we need to push forward on this front, um, not just you know, in terms of degree completion, but for people who need to change careers, um, who maybe got a degree that isn't appropriate for what they're doing now and so mm -hmm. on. So anyway, I just wanted to give some broader context there. Yeah, just, you know, just just jumping in real quick too, like I, I do think what David's talking about and what you're talking about, Terry, is also perhaps counter to the broader perception of the digital divide that underserved 
students students of color uh, may have a harder time accessing online education. Uh, I do want to get a little more perspective on that, maybe further down the road too, just around the digital divide. What is 2U doing right? And what could we do to understand better how to open up those online pathways? Because I, I do think it is a, it's counter to maybe the lazy thinking that's out there that, uh, you know, students of color, they don't have access to broadband and, you know, like I, a lot of uh, sort of lazy reasoning, I think happens uh, around that. But, but anyway, Stephanie, I think we wanted to, to hear from you as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I love what David said about it's not by accident, right? It's intentional, right? Programming that leads to that equitable experience. I think that's a really important point because I will say from our larger alumni survey data, what we know nationally is for bachelor's degree holders, they have inherently inequitable experiences while enrolled in higher education when you look across racial and ethnic groups for which we report about in our research. So two years ago, we actually asked students directly in our Gallup alumni survey, the extent to which they had the support they needed to be successful academically while enrolled. 46% of white students said they had all the support they needed. 36% of black and African-American students said the same. Similar percentages of Latinx students said the same. So there is a, a significant difference when you look just across all bachelor's degree holders in the U.S., all graduate degree holders in the U.S., if you look at the extent to which they have access to some of those resources. So it really does require intentionality from a programming perspective, whether you're online or on the ground, right? It's not a given in an online environment, just the way it's not a given in an on the ground environment. It requires some programming and some support services for students that I think is really important to understanding and contextualizing some of the results that we shared specifically for those 2U Powered Program alumni, because we see incredible inequities in support services. We even see nationally, for example, Black and African-American students are less likely to report that they feel cared for as a person within mm -hmm. their graduate or graduate school experience. We didn't see the same in some of the two-year powered program alumni interviews that we did. So mm -hmm. I think programming and intentionality is really critical. Even more broadly speaking, in our alumni survey data, we see that institutional typology and you know, public versus private, for-profit, not-for-profit, that actually has no real impact on students' experience while enrolled. Uh, it's much more the case that the programming that's contained within those those institutions has the actual impact on student experiences. Mm -hmm. okay. Can and I be? Go ahead. Go on, Michael. Well, I'd be just I'd be curious uh, who the there probably is no typical to you learner, but I would imagine uh, the alumni who uh, you're polling here, um, surveying, are. Uh, likely a little bit different than the way we might perceive a traditional uh, graduate student or, or a traditional undergraduate student. Um, and so I, th I think that perspective probably would be helpful uh, for, I'm not sure who's in the best position to, to share that. Maybe, uh, David, if, if you could begin uh, by just describing for us generally um, how to you thinks about uh, the students who you serve. Yeah, so I, I and this maybe, um, goes a little bit to, you know, there is this perception in the United States that, that, you know, undergrad and even graduate education is a certain like demo of student, right? And, and I think when it's intentionally designed, what's pretty compelling about online is it, it inherently creates a level of equity that at least sets you up for the potential for more success if you're actually trying to build, because by definition, you have to design the learning in a way that enables somebody who's working full-time and has a kid and this, that, and, the, and so I think if you, you know, one of the things that I really 
also really appreciated about this year's report is we were able to get much richer personal stories from some of the students who participated. And you, you can't not read their personal stories and see that it was a, they could have never gone back to their school and pursued these degrees if they weren't online. Um, and that the intentionality in which the learning experience was and the way the faculty approached the students that they had in the program mattered, both in terms of those students feeling like there was somebody who was cared about their well-being and their success, which is one of the strongest indicators, right, of, of, of a positive experience. And so, you know, I, I think the typical age in our degree programs, you know, is mid-30s. Most people are working full-time. There's a handful of disciplines that we power degrees in, like, you know, uh, uh, physician assistant, where there's so many clinical placements that you have to do that it's exceedingly difficult to work full-time. But I think one of the things that, and this maybe goes a little bit to, you know, stuff that Terry's done around, you know, radical empathy and just what does it mean to build an inclusive learning experience is that if you are enrolled, enrolled in a course, in a program, like a, our, the public health program at GW was one of the programs. And, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, imagine mm. being in a master's degree in public health. But uh, a, a handful of the students who were enrolled were like, you know, we had CEOs in the program. We had people running major healthcare systems. There was a young Latina who had been more of a, you know, worked in the kind of Medicaid system. And so, I again, I think the thing that is underappreciated is like, it would be exceedingly difficult to replicate that diversity of perspectives in a physical campus program. And as a result, what happens is imagine, you know, every week you're logging into a live session with 20 other people who are coming from all around the country and the world, different lived experiences, all, you know, uh, iterating around the same curriculum. And so the richness of the learning and the perspectives and the ability for somebody to say, well, actually, that's not true. I work with Medicaid eligible patients all the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you may be, you know, in this rarefied air thinking that that's the way it works, but that's not how it works in the real in the real world. So mm -hmm. I, um, you know, I just, it feels to me, and the, the analogy I've used in the past is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you told somebody that you had a match.com um, profile, they'd kind of look at you a little sideways and be like, you know, couldn't you just go to the bar or the museum and meet somebody? You know, now I think it's pretty much the case that like, if you're single, regardless of your age or stage in life, if you don't at least have some online presence in terms of your dating life, people are like, what, what are you doing? And I think that some of that is gonna end up happening in the online world. And to Terry's point, like if you're gonna be a lifelong learner, you know, you, I mean, she happens to live in Menlo Park, so she can go to Stanford, but like go back to Stanford. But most people can't do that, you know? Mm -hmm. Right and now I can't anyway. Partners are waking up to that, which is one of the reasons why they're starting to think about how do we actually serve adult learners at every stage and phase in their life with things beyond just a graduate degree program and, you know, alternative credentials and the like. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from that structure of small group synchronous connecting with each other across diverse perspectives. It's something we hear a lot about in uh, the professional world that ideally, you know, with this awakening around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that you're being more intentional about who has a seat at the table and who has an opportunity to interact with one another. 
Uh, Terry, I, I know you're about to uh, lean in in a new way to online learning. So I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective as someone who's uh, jumping in uh, as faculty in a new way uh, at McGill, uh, which is on the horizon for you. Uh, and then also get a little bit of your perspective uh, wearing that hat, looking at the results of this survey. Well, I think it shows that the, you know you can be effective in a remote classroom or online classroom. And you know I'm going to be teaching about 300 undergrads this fall. Um, and I'm actually, you know, one of the things I've been doing over the last three years, really, since I left Menlo College is diving into this world and trying to understand what's going on in terms of online learning. And, um, you know, it's it's really changed my perspective dramatically. And so um, I'm pretty tuned in to some of the groups and organizations and people who are, um, you know, focused on online learning and, and some of the, the uh, things that we can do to make it a better experience uh, for students. So, yeah. Um, but for, from the perspective of this report, I think it's, um, you know, it's interesting to see how um, that personal attention from the professor is such a critical factor. And, um, you know, so one question I have is, you know, what, how do you, how do you get students to understand that, you know, that personal, I mean, it may be online office hours and, and giving students a better chance to interact, but, um, you know, if I were face to face, you know, I would probably say, oh, we're going to have a coffee hour and you guys can come and meet me. And <laughs> but since I won't be face to face, at least not until the spring, you know, I have to find new ways to, to do that. Yeah. Uh, David, any question? Oh, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, well, uh, well, it's it's a... just a comment, really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I know you guys found that the personal attention from the professor was a, a, an important factor. Yeah. And, I, and you know, it's interesting because I, I I, I think that, you know, your the journey you said you've been on in the last, you know, several years, it is very rare, even during COVID, which we would have, would I, which I would call just like forced remote learning, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to intentionally designed online education. Mm -hmm. I think some of the surveys I've seen, a lot of faculty are like, okay, like there's dimensions of this that like, I actually think work and will make it better. Um, and so it's very rare for someone to, there's a lot of skeptics, you know, one of, one of the uh, deans who runs one of our uh, longer standing programs says, you know, I can't get my faculty agree to agree that the sun rises in the East. So like, <laughs> you're never gonna have unanimity of perspective on any of these things. But as a general matter, it is definitively the case that faculty members who participate in thoughtfully and intentionally design online programs over time come to appreciate that there is real pedagogical benefit to the ways in which it enables you to do things. And to your point, Terry, I mean, one of the things that I think is 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 gonna be even more interesting over time as technology continues to advance is like, you know, during COVID we developed a virtual field placement capability because a lot of students in programs like social work couldn't physically go into a facility. Mm -hmm. And so we had to figure out a way to essentially enable them to have an experiential interactive learning experience as if they were counseling someone real using actors and, you know, um, mm -hmm. and what's been really interesting is some of the physical campus social work programs at our partners are now using this tool hmm. and love it as much as the online programs because it solves a problem that has always been a challenge in those disciplines, which is you send a really green person into a real clinical setting mm -hmm. to talk to a real human being 
who's suffering from some real trauma. And wouldn't it be much better if you could enable that green student to have an experience where there's really no worry that they're going to, you know, and they can mm -hmm. get real time feedback. So there's things like that. There's the ability to use technology. We have a tool that's integrated into our learning tech called Critique It, which enables you to annotate any piece of content with another piece of content. So you can annotate video into text, text into video, audio into video. So when you think about the, you know, I went to Amherst College, which, you know, prides itself on small faculty interactive and was having, you know, just transitioned off the board of trustees. And, you know, many times in those meetings said, like, we have to get over ourselves because there, there are dimensions of that intimacy of that student faculty learning experience that technology can actually make even richer and more personalized, you know, in a way that I think improves the learning experience and the teaching experience. Yeah. And I will say that intentional design piece is so important to what we experienced in the last year because we conducted a survey in the fall of 2020 with Lumina Foundation where we were interviewing currently enrolled bachelor's degree students as well as those who are currently enrolled in pursuing a two-year degree. We asked them a series of questions around quality. Because of course, the myth at the time was that everybody was going to think they were having a really low quality experience, especially for those who were forced into a remote setting. And in interviewing those students, what we found overwhelmingly was that students who were in person before and then were forced to a remote setting were more negative about the quality of their experience. But far and away, the negativity was because they were forced into just a Zoom room with very basic levels of instruction, right? And being in a Zoom room is not online learning, right? As mm -hmm. you would explain really well. And that's why we know from everything we've done with Western Governors University and other institutions that are working with 2U, those 2U powered programs, is those intentionally designed programs produce drastically different outcomes than just those who attend an institution, quote, online. So it's not mm -hmm. online versus on the ground. It's intentionality that's built into a program that makes the biggest difference. I mean, I think the silver lining of COVID, because there were a few, I think that we could all describe in this call. One of the silver linings is we saw a lot of our institutional partners who've been very reticent to jump into the online world have a forced experiment to do so. And I do think they realized what David mentioned, that you can do this. It does require a lot of thought and a lot of design work, but you can do this effectively. And I think that's important because, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there's so much nostalgia for going backwards. Everyone said, when can we go back to quote normal? And I thought, what a short-sighted thought, right? Because normal was a system that left out a tremendous amount of adult learners, non-traditional learners, students of color, women from a system that have been left out for a while now, decades. I mean, mm -hmm. so I, I think we'd be remiss to be too nostalgic about pre-COVID times in the case of higher education, because it's not like we were perfect. And I actually think we've learned a lot about how online can bring those student populations into the mix in a really powerful way that will improve and allow us to really bring a whole new generation into the higher education system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Stephanie, from so many different perspectives is one of the things I've really come to realize in the last few years is that, yes, there's a place for the traditional residential model, and that's not going away, but there's millions and millions, you know, I feel like, you know, Carl Sagan, billions and billions, but mm -hmm. <laughs> millions of people out there who need this and who want this and who this fits very well. I think part of the problem is the perspective is that, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're pushing students online, you know, and, and it's, it's gonna be an inferior thing. And it's like, no, there's a way to do it 
and we it's been around for you know the funny thing is is people oh this is all the like, no it's been out going on for 30 40 years folks and before that there was correspondence courses and you know i mean there's just so many different ways this has been happening and that people have been getting a good education and there's a, a this vast kind of middle layer i would say of people who you know maybe have had some college classes or or, or what you know couldn't afford to go to college who need this and right. you know this is this is not optional anymore <laughs> this yeah. we we are going to have to provide this and do it in a way that is is going to to function beyond you know what one of our attendees is saying you know it's crisis schooling right now but we need to get to you know the institutions that have looked at it that way have to shift and say okay some of our students may need this online focus and or as you know you're applying to college or considering college maybe or you know as you become a life I, it, you know we are going to have to become lifelong learners that's just the reality yeah and and i think if you look at the economics of it uh which is another component uh david i'd love to get some of your perspective on this you know it does the addressable market that that you can then reach becomes so much larger when you understand the needs will span a 60 year lifespan as a learner, maybe longer. Uh, and that frequently we are gonna need to retool and go back and re-credential and play with our head up because the, the world around us is changing. Uh, I'd love to get some perspective uh, from, from you, uh, David, around how to you thinks about the size of your market and also the the economics uh, around the cost per credit or smaller credential programs because it does feel like to you in some ways maybe uh you know they were you were ahead of the curve in terms of online learning but i think you you may also be ahead of the curve in terms of uh broadening the aperture uh through which you look at who might be able to be helped uh with your services yeah so i would say you know what we often say is if you look at globally, the biggest industry sectors, you think transportation, you think healthcare, you think technology, um, education is actually right up there in terms of like, you know, trillions of dollars, both, you know, private investment and public investment go into um, education, um, but less than like three, 4% of the global uh, higher education world has moved into digital. So like, we're still very, very, very early in um, this. And, you know, it's interesting because early on in two years um, history, there were some who said, well, yeah, okay, but you guys are just operating in, you know, uh, top tier elite nonprofit online graduate degree programs. And, you know, that, that, that was true. But part of the reason why we started there is because if you think about the 1.0 version of online, right? There were some real challenges, right? And so to prove that it it can be done well and deliver great outcomes, and just so people know, we have a 74% graduation rate in our degree programs. And uh, we think it's higher than any you know, most physical campus graduate programs. And, you know, mid 80s, high nine, mid 90 retention rates, you know, and over the course of the 10 years, both of those have continued to go up. But I guess the point is that to bend the cost curve, create access, you need scale, right? Mm -hmm. And you need to know that the model works. So you don't wanna experiment on the most at-risk students who need the most support. So what's interesting, and you know, you can see this in, in Morehouse, you can see it in LSC, you can see it in Simmons, you can see it in our bootcamp offerings, where suddenly now 
we have the scale. And I think one of the things that's sometimes underappreciated about what TU has built is you have the Southern New Hampshire's, the ASU's, the Western governors, you know, the University of Maryland global campuses, which are large, predominantly online, digital first national universities, but they're one institution, right? We have 80 university partners across 150 different degree programs, across 30 different disciplines. That doesn't even include the short courses and the boot camps. And so the breadth of insight, perspective, dimensionality of whether it's pedagogical design in a certain discipline, if it's like behavioral students, regional bias, all these things, and it's all data that we that we have. And so I one of the reasons why I came to to you and you know, you know, if anybody were to look at my my CV, that's like I have always cared about access and education. I do a lot of nonprofit work in this space. And I genuinely believed that to you has one of these pretty unique business models where our success as a business is aligned with the incentives of outcomes. Because guess what? We would go out of business if we didn't have really high completion rates because we share tuition as students go through the program. So if we just recruited people in the front end and they all dropped out and didn't complete, we'd never get the money back that we invest on the front end. And so as a result of that, now that we have a certain level of scale, we go to a university like Morehouse and say, okay, well, Arizona State Online is $575 a credit. And, you know, uh, you know, Western Governors or Southern New Hampshire is maybe 425 or high 300. I, I mean this in a, in a, in a non-judgmental way, but brothers aren't lining up to go to Southern New Hampshire University, right? So like if you have the choice as a black man who has 30 college credits to spend $600 a credit and get your degree from Morehouse and what it means to become a Morehouse man and the signaling value of that in the marketplace, or you were going to get your degree from ASU, you're going to go to Morehouse, mm -hmm. right? And that's what the world needs. It needs more of that. And, mm -hmm. and I think we're, we're not the only company that's capable of doing that, but like right. we're one of the few and we are committed to doing it in a way that is going to deliver the same kind of outcomes for those Morehouse men that we've delivered for the last 13 years for, you know, students in our graduate degree programs. And I think that's a win, you know, and, yeah. you know, not everybody feels that way, but I, I feel very strongly that that's the case. Um, and so I think keep an eye out for more from us when it comes to these degree completion programs and undergrad and more opportunities. We were just chosen by 110, this new initiative to reskill a million uh, black workers as one of their endorsed training partners. Um, and they did a lot of assessment of all of our outcomes and our data. And they looked and they're like, you guys are delivering great experiences for, you know, black learners. So like, come on board and help us, you know, meet these goals. Mm -hmm. I have a, that leads really and really well to um, like one of the questions I had, which is, you know, we've heard, heard all this, this uh, data about how women are being impacted by, you know, the remote having to take care of their kids and family members and so on. And so it seems like this is a great opportunity to maybe partner. You know, I, I, I feel sad because, you know, colleges like Mills College and some other women's colleges have, have basically oh, yeah. closed. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean? It, it seemed, I mean, I would have been saying this for over a year. Why can't we collaborate and consolidate and say, let's have a women's learning experience, especially now that women 
you know, they need to be, you know, they're going to have to do some reskilling. They're going to have, they need, might need that graduate degree. You know, they, it, it, and, you know, I really, the one thing I do think has been helpful is the, the collaboration with um, employers and, and so on that um, where they're allowing, you know, a certain amount of time for their um, workers to, to take these courses. But I think as, you know, they're going to be really interested in working with, you know, what if Mills College had gone to an online program and then a degree completion? Yeah, I think there was a good opportunity there for uh, them to, you know, be able to survive. Totally. Well, you know, we just entered into a deal with Guild and that was Guild Education. That was one of the reasons, right? And, you know, I think they're excited about you know, Simmons is an all, Simmons University, all women's, mm -hmm. um, you know, run by a really dynamic Lynn Wooten, African-American, uh, you know, female president of the college. Um, and I do think that you will see um, online, once the women who have stepped away from the workplace decide, there was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal in New York Times just yesterday about like this deliberative moment that people are having who've stepped away from the workforce about like, what do I really want to do? Like, do mm -hmm. I really want to go back and work at, you know, Starbucks? not that there's anything wrong with working at Starbucks or wherever, but like, or do I, is this my moment to really think about a more profound shift? And some of those people are going to say, it's get, going back and getting my college degree. Some are going to say, I, I'm going to take a boot camp, or I'm going to, or it could be, you know, interestingly, our Yale Women's Leadership course and our Oxford Women's Leadership course uh, on, on the short course side are like oversubscribed. And my, my view is some of that is, you know, women looking, taking a step back and saying, okay, like, what do I want? Like, how, how can I create agency in this moment and make the choices that I, that are going to serve me and my family well. And, um, and I think if universities want to be responsive to those needs, they have to wake up and realize that they, have to offer more options for people. And it can't be, you got to drive halfway across town every three days a week, you know, when you don't have childcare to pursue your degree or finish something, it's just not sustainable. So or move to incredibly expensive parts of the country, right? I mean, in the case of Simmons, as an example, if you want to experience a women-centered college, but you don't move to Boston, which is an incredibly high cost of living, to have that online option is a great one for a lot of women throughout the country. You know, I think about what you were sharing about the Morehouse example and the Simmons example. They're just more options, right? So more options we can provide individuals, the more likely we are to increase the actual percentage of these individuals that complete, because we haven't really moved the needle in a real way on access for the better part of the last few decades in traditional campus-based programs, right? The student population that graduates from those institutions has looked pretty similar over the course of that period, despite a lot of great efforts by institutions from a scholarship perspective and otherwise. And I think a lot of that is just pure modality, right? And pure options, the flexibility that people need in order to attend and complete a degree. So, I mean, we can throw a million scholarships at the problem, but I don't think it's gonna solve the issue of not everybody wants to move to live in Back Bay in downtown Boston, right? And certainly not if they have a family, they have to relocate in order to do so. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd love to get a, a little more uh, from each of you on that as well, like how, the playing field is changing. Higher ed has been disrupted. Online will be a bigger part of higher ed forever, I would think, moving forward. Uh, and then at the same time, there is how to think about upskilling, certifications, uh, short courses, boot camps. Uh, it does seem as though that is 
likely next on the horizon for uh, for Stephanie and David, I would think, to to maybe look not just at the graduate alumni, uh, but also look at the broader set of uh, learners who you serve. And uh, I'd love to get some perspective uh, around where you see where you see things headed. Uh, what kind of research questions uh, you know maybe are, are are on the horizon for you as uh, as we look at this this really disrupted landscape that uh, that is on the horizon for us. So I'd say three things, and I'll turn it over to Stephanie. The first is I think one of the things you're going to see as a result of COVID is more nonprofit. Not the super super elites, but like highly regarded nonprofit universities go online with undergraduate offerings that are differentially priced from their physical campus, with the desire to serve adult learners and really become like you know broaden their brand and their reach and the mission. I think that's one of the things that you will see over the next three to five years. On, on the bootcamp side of things, you know, and we, you know, we now have 45 plus university, nonprofit universities, public and privates across 26 states in the District of Columbia that are running, you know, boot camps across eight different disciplines. I won't give you all of, all of them, but things like coding and UX and cyber. And what, what's really interesting, and, um, and I'll let Stephanie talk about, you know, where we think some of the research opportunities are there, is historically, Traditional four-year public and private nonprofit universities have not been major players in the skills space, training space. You know, it's been mostly community college players. Arguably, to use network of bootcamp university partners is now the largest single integrated nationwide network of upskilling and reskilling technical-based stuff in the country. Mm. And so that really excites us because we actually think it, it presents the opportunity to team up with Gallup and look in, in similar ways in, in the way that we looked at graduate programs, but look at these alternative credentials that are shorter form, more tech skills focused, designed to really lead to uh, like either changing your job within the place you're working or you know, job changing and reskilling. And Stephanie, maybe you can share a little bit about you know, how we're thinking about that. Yeah, well, I'll just say, you know, that really excites me in particular because I think there's so little that's understood about short-term credentialing, and yet we know it's really the path forward for so many adults, particularly those disrupted prior to COVID, right? We talk a lot about COVID-related disruption, but there was disruption coming to the workforce long before COVID reached our world, and I think right. a lot of people were examining ways in order they would reskill and upskill, then COVID happened and put an exclamation point on that need for a lot of Americans, and it introduced the need for a lot more Americans that now feel like, you know what, maybe I don't want to go back to my hospitality job. Maybe that is not a job that gave me a lot of fulfillment. Maybe I want to do something new. But most of the research done so far about short-term credentialing has combined a lot of unlike things and talked about them as one category, right? This is what it looks like in terms of earnings or employment-based outcomes for those who had a short-term credential, which was everything from enrolling in one welding course to doing an entire bootcamp program in which you became a coding expert, right? And those two things really can be combined and talked about as one. So I think what excites me about the research that we'll have the opportunity to do with two you is that we can really look at a series of programs that are similar in their design and learn a lot about what does the mechanics of a program have to look like in order for individuals to derive real impact from it. So that's one thing I'll say on that part, but I will just say from a broader perspective, the American adult population is still really positive in some ways about higher education. I mean, most Americans, when you ask them the extent to which they think a college education is important, are very positive and think one is important. 
But for years, we've been tracking at Gallup the extent to which they feel like education is available to those who need it. And they're incredibly negative on this issue, right? They don't think it's an accessible system. Some of the challenges that we saw in the sports area a few years ago with the scandal there certainly didn't help that issue, right? It became very clear that it is accessible for certain types of students and certain schools are accessible for certain types of students. That didn't help the public's view on higher education. So I think we have a lot of work to do to explain to Americans that there are these other options like short-term credentialing and online degree programs that are available and accessible to a larger amount of Americans. Because for most, they think this is an inaccessible system reserved for the elite and they become really frustrated in the process. So I think we have a little bit of educational work to do to explain all the options available to individuals because most people still, when they think about higher education or we interview them and ask them how important is it to get a college degree, they have this vision of a four-year degree-granting program, beautiful trees, beautiful campus, beautiful large brick buildings. And that's not the reality, right? There's so many programs that are available like those that we've described that to you powers, but so many others as well, that most people just don't even connect now to higher education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the other aspect of that is, uh, you know, transportability, right? And one of the reasons people look at, you know, as a being a very closed system is because partly it is, you know, it's hard to transfer mm-hmm. credits from one school to another. And that's totally. got to change. I mean, the accrediting bodies are going to, you know, I think the pressure is going to have to come from the federal government to say, look, if a student takes this class over here, they should be able to transfer it, you know, however, you know, I mean, part of the problem is, you know, a lot of these four-year institutions want to make sure, oh, you have to have a certain amount of residency and, and all of that. And it's like, well, come on, you know, we need to give students more flexibility. The world has changed. It's not what it was 30 or 40 years ago or 500 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> even, even two years ago, honestly. In some ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So transportability has got to change. I mean, we got to see, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of micro credentials. If you go to school for two years, you should get some kind of credential, even if it's a four-year institution. You know, anyway, we could talk at length about all of that. But I think this online revolution and, and uh, what you guys are doing and in, in bringing the data to bear to say this is what's happening is really going to to make a difference. And I have so many friends I'm going to send this to because um, I have this has um, been a huge discussion in on LinkedIn and Clubhouse and some of the other social media I've been on about how we can can create this change. And and, you know, even the uh, have a friend who's a really big harps on this issue of you know how much degree a degree costs and and um, so anyway, I just I think this has been a fantastic discussion. And actually, I would I hope we can do this on a regular basis when you guys have new data. Um, we would love to, to get you back in here because this is really a, a huge topic that um, a lot of people are interested in. And um, I know I will have lots of friends and colleagues who are, will be eager to listen. Yeah. And uh, and we're at the this is at the. The closing mm-hmm. thoughts segment of the show here too. So if uh, if you have any uh, ways to summarize your perspective, I know there's a lot to cover in what we just uh, discussed, but I'd love to to maybe close with uh, with some thoughts from you, uh, Stephanie and and David, uh, just around where where you are, uh, what you've learned, uh, and then maybe some things people could uh, could take home with them uh, as we wrap up here. So maybe begin with you, uh, Stephanie, and then and then. Uh, close with you, uh, David? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, what I mentioned earlier, it's been a difficult year, but I actually think that it's been a really powerful one for higher education. I think there's been a reckoning 
a little bit about what it means to educate and to provide an equitable education in particular. And I think the thing that I was most energized about through this research is that we did find a case in which you can provide equity in the experience students have while enrolled, right? And that's not a given. That's not a given for an on-the-ground experience. It's not a given in an online environment. There has to be some intentionality associated with that. So I think What's maybe encouraging through this research and through this difficult year is equity is possible, but it requires a lot of work. Um, and I think that the programs in which Chuyu works with has, has demonstrated that through this research. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I would say is, um, and I would have said this before COVID, but I feel like it's even more um, relevant and necessary now, which is that like the demand and the need for people to develop skills, whether it's going back to get a four-year degree or getting a graduate degree or you name it, it's not going away. It's, it's going to become increasingly important. And all of these major kind of challenges we face as a society and as an economy necessitate it. So like at the end of the day, I feel like we've reached a stage in a phase where these conversations should not be about online versus on ground. They should not be versus degree versus non-degree. They should be about how do you deliver quality? How do you do it in a way that creates access and opportunity that's affordable? And how can it be sustainable? Because you need all of those things for it to work. It's not good enough if you put something quality out there that's affordable, but it's not sustainable because the business model doesn't work. And we have to be honest with ourselves that it is a business model and there are profoundly structural problems with the existing business model in higher ed. And so I, I would hope that people who care about these issues would, would be a little bit more, less precious about, about all of that and more focused on the things that actually matter um, because I think if we took the debate to there from a policy perspective and just a thought leadership perspective, we would be in a much better position because we could actually do the things that work. And there are things that work. We just have to be all willing to acknowledge that and then embrace the things that work and leave the things on the sideline that don't work. Yeah, Great stuff. And I'll just add a final comment because we got one minute left, Yeah, <laughs> which is that this, this just you know, we need to be more open and more, I mean, David, you and I, I know we, we both work a lot on, on access and, and, you know, not, but it's not just access, it's success. <laughs> so um, we need to focus on both of those components. And I really appreciate the work you guys are doing because this helps us take another step in that direction. So the, the, there's the component access component, but to see that we people actually can have success in these more flexible environments is really critical to the future of higher education. Awesome. Yeah. Appreciate Great you stuff. Both inviting us. Thank you. Always enjoy Thank these you. conversations. Yeah, this yes. is fantastic. And uh, when more research comes out or, or new things are on the horizon, uh, you know, open invitation to come back and also an open invitation to everyone who's listening, everyone who joined us. Uh, we'll be back again soon on an upcoming uh, Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, 12 yes. p.m. Pacific, mm -hmm. Terry. Yes. And uh, any closing final final thoughts as we wrap up? Now, just to mention that we're going to be talking academic freedom and free speech at our in our next discussion. So that's going to be a big topic with Jonathan Friedman. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you all.